1: How long have you and your spouse been keeping your vows?
2: We're going to introduce you to a couple today. They've been married for a lot longer than us. Two professing Christians in a marriage, which really should have had it all. But today, the temperature between them was ice cold.
1: In more deep conversations, it became apparent that cold had been the norm for about a year. I asked them questions related to their faith, and of course they knew every Sunday school answer.
2: Sometimes I think, David, that's the easiest one to give.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Their Christian pedigree included more years of church attendance than they could count on all their fingers combined. Their kids grew up in church and each of them knew all the Sunday school answers as well. But at home, the marriage was a wreck. And although they believed that they were hiding it well, their kids knew that it wasn't working.
2: So one night their son said in confidence to his dad, dad, if this is what's normal for a marriage, I don't ever want to be married.
1: You see, the Lord that we say we've committed our lives to serve is revealed or not revealed first to those that are closest to us. The son in this family was not seeing the evidence of a loving God by watching the reality of his parents' marriage. None of their kids had ever made a decision for Christ, even though they knew the gospel and could probably lay out the Romans road easily. It wasn't until I asked the parents to tell about their kid's salvation story that they, as parents, had really even considered where each of their children are at spiritually, let alone the role that they should be focused on given the evidence, or in this case, lack of evidence, of their faith. In that moment, conviction hit them hard. The family photos look great. The casual conversations with strangers at church seemed sound. The facade looked like it was working. The reality, however, was that in their home, the evidence for their faith was lacking.
2: David and I are both professing Christians, just like you, I suspect. The proof though, is sometimes not in the pudding on a Friday night when the week has been hard and we don't feel like we have anything left to give one another. We're not ready in that moment to pour into each other and live out what we say we believe. If you're a professing Christian today, you don't need to prove yourself to God. We can stand before God knowing that our eternity is secure because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. But just like this couple and just like us, sometimes we have a high need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Like it says in Philippians chapter 2, we need to make every effort to confirm our calling and election. Like it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, we have a high need to manifest and to prove our faith.
1: So with that said, this is where our final two segments in this Trim It, Live It, and Prove It series get their name, Proving It. God's word is pretty clear that there should be evidence of our faith. It's not evidence for proving that we're worthy of God's love or his blessings. No, it's about proving who he is to the world.
2: We're going to be talking about exactly that in just a little bit in 1 John
1: This couple's world, like yours and like mine, starts with your spouse, then it extends to your kids, then it's your friends, then it's your coworkers, and so on. Proving it is done first in the places where faking it would never work.
2: If you're interested in staying a baby Christian your whole life like many people do, I suppose you could stop at just accepting Christ as your savior. Many don't realize that they have stayed in that toddler-like state in their faith. I was there for a long time myself. On the outside, they look good, but inside they go through spiritual tantrums. They demand their way. They figure out ways to justify to themselves why they don't need God's authority in those dark places of their life, in the places where there's sin. They aren't willing to trim it and live it.
1: It's interesting. I've never met anyone who has had marriage trouble who was walking out their Christian faith in excellence that there was evidence of God and the obedience to him just oozing all over the place. This stuff is real for all of us. God allows our marriage to be one of the strongest, best things that helps us to see and gauge our relationship with him as well as our spouse. Think about this. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us.
2: Your spouse has never seen God, but they can clearly see him in you and the way you live out your faith in front of them. So often, though, I think we think the problem in our marriage is actually our spouse, that maybe we in fact married the wrong person, or they just need to clean up their act When what's happening within your relationship is more like the temperature gauge on the dashboard than the engine that powers the vehicle.
1: I've heard it said also that it's like a thermostat. Our relationship with God is where the heat comes from. But our marriage shows the reality of whether there's really a fire there or not. Because part of God's design for marriage is sanctification. It's designed to put you close enough to someone here on earth that you yourself are shown the reality of faking it. Versus proving it.
2: Do you ever feel like you are being asked to prove your faith? Maybe God is tugging on your heart saying, Is this real for you? Or are you just putting on an act? Or maybe your spouse is asking that of you. Let me tell you something about myself. So I was reading God's word the other day, and this is one of those passages in God's word that rips at my heart when I read it. It makes me go beyond just viewing the scene from afar. You know, like I do when I read the account of David and Bathsheba, I'm kind of like a hundred feet away watching the scene unfold, or maybe I'm picturing Paul in prison, but I'm not in the jail cell with him. But when I get to these verses that I'm going to read to you in just a minute, I become a participant and not willingly, let me tell you, not willingly. I don't want to be there. I want to flip the page and read something else. Have you read verses like that? Well, these verses I'm going to share with you transport me from my comfortable little spot in here in Ohio to to the sandy beach where I encounter Jesus, and I'm not looking him in the face. I'm looking at my dirty sandals because I don't have the courage to look up. My emotions as Jesus talks to me turn from self-confidence to indignance to finally sorrow. And he says this, Tracy, do you love me? Now, I could avoid him. I don't care for confrontation, probably just like you. I like my nice little safely controlled cocoon. And I especially don't like my loyalty being questioned. How dare Jesus ask me if I love him? He knows I do. So let's read the passage I'm talking about. And I want you to put yourself in the scene, not with me, just you and Jesus. John 21, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know, I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time you can imagine Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. We're going to focus on two key points here today, although there's much more to study. Number one, who are the sheep? And number two, What do they need? Why does Jesus keep bringing that up?
1: Yeah, sheep is a pretty pretty broad term here. He refers to those who don't know him as goats. Look at Matthew 25, sheep are his disciples. Jesus has sheep everywhere. Read Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Disciples are made. If your wife is one of Christ's disciples, one of his sheep, then you are called to go to her to help her to be a disciple of Christ, the best disciple that she can be. As you teach her everything as God has said in his word, Peter, do you love me? Then go and feed my word to your wife so she will be a strong disciple of mine, making more disciples with you. Not long after this, we see that Jesus speaks one last time to his disciples with a little further instructions. This is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth.
2: The Great Commission, and then these last words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, I think are so often put into terms that are a little bit too far out of arm's reach for me. So I've heard sermon after sermon on the end of Matthew 28, with the call of action being this, to look at our quote unquote Judea, That's our closest surroundings and realize the need for Christ in those places. So I picture scenes like this, sitting at a school lunch table, sharing about Christ. I see going to a nursing home and playing a game with someone who may or may not know the gospel, but maybe I'll get the chance to share it with them. I see going to work and developing a relationship with a coworker to let them see the love that God has for us. So we've got this map in our minds. We've got Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth as as Jesus described in his last words in Acts chapter 1. And we've been taught that Jerusalem is our city, Judea is our county, Samaria would be like our state or the adjoining region, and then the ends of the earth would be foreign countries. I think that's fairly accurate, but I think we're missing something crucial here. We've got the circle of Jerusalem started just a little too far out from reality. Jesus says, go and make disciples, teach everything I've commanded you because I'm with you. Well, that starts in our closest relationships. It doesn't start in the school or in the workplace. It starts in our homes with our kids. And even just a little bit closer, it starts in our bedrooms. And it starts when we make the coffee in the morning and across the console in the van and at the double vanity sink in the bathroom, brushing our teeth together. It starts with your spouse. And that can make us squirm just a little bit because the command doesn't change. Go make disciples and teach starts right within our homes. It's easier to think about and even put our feet to reaching out to someone in need in our community than it is to putting action to the gospel in my marriage, especially when we're not at a high point in our relationship.
1: We've talked in this series about disciples of Christ. Here's what we connected to the proof, the evidence that you are a disciple of Christ is what is motivating you moment by moment. All the decisions, all the actions, the choices, all come together, culminating around that. In your marriage with the person who knows you the best and sees all your flaws, the person who probably has a beef against you for one reason or another, yet that same person, you're called to teach them and to help them to be the best disciple of Christ that they can be for him.
2: I know exactly what you mean david that person whose mistakes and sins and little annoying idiosyncrasies that you are most personally familiar with the person who affects your life the most yes that is the same person that god is calling us to be living proof of him every single day over that sink full of dirty dishes or when the car won't start or when he wants to be close tonight and you don't the call for the proof in the pudding gets real in those moments Remember the Great Commission. Jesus said, Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Truly, we have a unique calling to not only obey God's word for ourselves, but to teach God's commands to others so they will obey as well. Obedience is the evidence, obedience is the proof.
1: Now, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 6. Here's the history and context for you, though, that I want to share. Moses was just given the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and then he comes down and speaks to his people. He says, these are the commands, the decrees, the regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy, and you and your grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. There's that word again, Tracy. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. It continues in verse 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them where you are. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on your doorposts at your house and on your gates. He's saying, put them everywhere that they need to be to be forefront on your mind.
2: He continues, when you've eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord. That is so key who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Verse 13 of Deuteronomy 6. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. You must not worship any of the gods of the neighboring nations, for the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God. You must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so all will go well with you. In the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, these regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? And here's what you must tell them. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. And the last verse, For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands the Lord our God has given us. Wow, what a chapter.
1: What insights into God's heart for us. What a motivation to obey him. What a call for wholehearted commitment to prove what we say is true. But let's break this down a bit because I think it's so important that we see this in terms that we can understand and apply to our own life. Why is God asking us to obey? I think it starts when we realize that obedience keeps our hearts in check with God. God is very concerned about our spiritual condition. He's asking us to do a heart check. Obedience is him giving us a way To live as his children.
2: Number two, why is God asking us to obey? Well, obedience makes us fit to show and prove his love because when we obey God's word, the fat gets cut out and we're spiritually healthy enough to run the race. If we're in sin, then we're not in obedience. Maybe there's fluff in our life that needs to be cut out. If there is, We're not going to be fit enough to go into Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. We won't even be making it into our Jerusalem, our very own homes. If we can't love with Christ's love, those who share a house with us, we're not going to be effective at making disciples of anyone outside of our four walls.
1: It's so true, Tracy. Obedience gives us the ability, it gives us the platform to make disciples of the next generation. Will our children know why we are obeying God when we're not just talking about it? but we're actually doing it, of course they will. It's when they see us doing it that they see God.
2: Just like what we read in Deuteronomy 6, it's what gets the conversation going. The children start asking, what are you up to? Why are you doing this? And it's a reminder to us and to them of what God has done. Number four, why obey? Well, obedience helps us to not forget what God has rescued us from. We were slaves to sin, just like the Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Obedience helps us to remember that we've been freed, not just use our freedom for selfish gain, but to use our freedom to love, like it says in Galatians chapter five.
1: Obedience leads us to an abundant life that God has for us. You see, God gave this message to Israel, go and obey, do what I've asked you to do. And he says, so all will go well with you. God is for you. He wants to teach you though that obedience brings his hand of blessing in your life. Number six, obedience keeps us from idol worship. There's a strict, solemn warning here in Deuteronomy 6 to not go back and worship false gods. Now I know we don't think about that very often in 2019 or 2020 here, but that is our tendency. They're not idols that we form out of wood or clay, but we have all kinds of things that we idolize in our lives. Current obedience to God's word keeps us in a very safe zone of not having idols in our life it's when we get to worshiping anything other than god our desires our goals some material possessions even personal perfection that we begin to trip and fall
2: just a couple more here why obey well obedience drives out the enemy you heard that as we read through deuteronomy 6 darkness flees before light it has to go and we do have a very real enemy. He's roaming about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And someone who isn't living proof of a loving God is going to be easy prey. Obedience makes you well equipped with the truth of God's word to withstand any attack. I encourage you to check out Ephesians chapter 6 on this topic.
1: Obedience gives proof to the world of who we are. John 13:35 says this, "By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another,
2: it is living proof, David, for sure. And obedience gives proof to those closest to us of who God is. We talked about that earlier with our spouse and our children. And the last one obedience gives us confidence before God, it confirms what we know already to be true and what God has set us apart for. Obedience confirms that we are His, obedience is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and in our lives. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, "Continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming." So, how can we be confident? Well, 1 John 3:14 says, "We know that we've passed from death to life because of this, because we love each other." There's the proof. 1 John 4:17 says, "This is how love is made complete among us:" so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. It's this, in this world, we were like Jesus. So we've looked at why obey. Okay, let's get down to the nitty gritty. What is he asking us to obey?
1: What did Jesus teach is really the question you're asking, Tracy. What did he command that we're to obey and also to teach others in order to make disciples of our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth? Let's look at this in a very nice, boiled down, simple way so we can all remember it when we need it most. First of all, obedience equals love.
2: That might be something I need to write down and like hang in our house, David, because really that's what Jesus is asking us here. Okay, so now we got to ask the question, what is love?
1: Love is knowing what someone wants or needs and taking measurable action to ensure that they receive it.
2: Can you say that again?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sure. Love is knowing what someone wants or needs and taking measurable actions to give it to them.
2: I love this short, simple phrase in 1 John 4 eight. It says, God is love. Him giving up his own son to ensure that our most pressing need was met in measurable action is the proof of his love for us. And now he invites us into this new commandment but also an old one, one that we've heard from the beginning and one God is still requiring us to live out, 1 John 3, 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And if you look at God's word, it's a repeated theme again and again. We cannot overlook this. We see it in Deuteronomy 10, where God says, You must fear the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, to love him and to serve him with all your heart and soul. It's a theme that's repeated again in 1 John chapter 3. This is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and to love one another as he has commanded. The one who keeps his command, 1 John 3 continues, lives in him and he in them. This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit that he gave us. These verses are such a confirmation of what he has given to us in the verse I read just before in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Here's the progression. Number one, believe in Jesus. God's son, and God asks us to fear him, to honor him, to place him in that point of reverence in our life. Number two, love God equals loving one another. And that means walking in obedience to his commands.
1: And number three, God is generous to give to us, not only for our good, but to further his kingdom. You see, being in Christ and Christ being in us and having the indwelling Holy Spirit, we see that his continual presence provides the strength that really emboldened and empowers us to live that life of love that's talked about. So obedience, obedience is love. Love is knowing what someone wants or needs and then jumping right into giving it to them.
2: In conclusion today on Vows to Keep Radio, I'm standing on that beach with Jesus today and so are you. And Jesus is asking us, so will we be able to look him in the eye with confidence and answer his question, do you love me? Jesus is asking us, so will we be bold enough in Him to show the evidence of His love to our wife or our husband every single day? Do you love me? Jesus is asking that of us. So will we be able to show the proof of God's love for our husband and our wife? Do you love me? He asks, Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then prove it for these three reasons feed my sheep, give them my teaching. Help them to be my disciple. Prove it with love.
1: Join us next week in this last segment of this six part series as we get super practical in proving it. An exciting broadcast that dives deep into the put on and put off principle found in God's word.
0: Vows to Keep is supported by a team which includes biblical coaches, writers, and pastoral advisors. If you have a desire to serve marriages in your community, we would love to hear from you. Vows to Keep is a not-for-profit marriage ministry designed to bring God's encouraging truth to the marriages of our area. As a not-for-profit organization, our commitment to Christ-like marriages includes providing much needed services regardless of a couple's financial ability to offset the cost of Vows to Keep operations. If you are unable to donate your time or abilities, but would like to help support Vows to Keep financially, visit vows2keep.com and click on the donate link. This program is sponsored by Vows to Keep of Zanesfield, Ohio.